Welcome back to the Lars Resort. Uh, yeah, we're back. We're back at it. Back at it again at the resort uh, after uh, Easter, I suppose. After we had a little sort of uh, break from normal podding in the sense of my my marathon chat with Tokyo's and Carlson. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed doing it and and editing it. Uh, and and hope you enjoyed your Easter if you celebrated it, if you went somewhere, if you just took some time off, if you spent some time with your family, whatever you did. I hope that was nice. But let's let's get back on it. And since since there's been a few stories since uh, since the last proper Lars Resort pod, we're not just going to do one thing. I just want to have a a smurgus board, if you want, of uh, of, of things that have happened that that I feel like we should have a, a quick chat about. And, and and chief amongst them, he is back. <laughs> uh, it would be of no surprise to, to long-time listeners of the OG Norwegian pod that we, we cannot start with anything other than the return of Frank Lampard. <laughs> he's back. He's back. After things went very badly wrong at, at, at Everton, he's somehow in charge of a team that's in the knockout stages of the Champions League. Would you believe it? You know, it, it is one of those things... That uh, with my theory, which I think I've mentioned on this pod before, that like in in football management terms, uh, famous ex-players are kind of like the nepo babies of the arts and entertainment industry, in in the sense that you do obviously need to be talented to do good work. You know, if you're on a movie set and the camera's rolling, your parents aren't going to help you, but. And same thing with coaches. You, you still have to do the work and you still have to do well. But the thing is, some of them just seem to get slightly more chances that, that, than others. That, that, is the, that is the Nepo baby thing more than anything. And that definitely applies to certain ex-players when it comes to management. Does seem to apply to Frank Lampard. I think this is the fourth time Frank Lampard has uh, taken a coaching job. And the fourth time my initial thought was, huh, he's, he's done well to get that gig. I mean, if Frank Lampard ever does a TED Talk... It should be about, like, job interviews, I think. He does seem to do very well. I, I'm, I suspect there are coaches out there who look at their CVs and what they've achieved and stuff and looks at the kind of jobs they get offered and thinks, huh. Of course, the main thing would be that they're not Frank Lampard, I guess, is uh, is the problem here. Anyway, he's back, and, and it hasn't it hasn't been a huge success so far. And I, I always do this when... When something happens that, that I can't quite make sense of, I try not to just go, well, that's weird, and just go on the internet and write, so weird! Uh, I, I, I try to sort of think, well, what could be the reason? I look for reasons why you would do why you would do such a thing. Why has Chelsea hired Premier League Hall of Famer, as they said in the joint statement from the co-chairman, Boley and Igbali? He's a Premier League Hall of Famer, Frank Lampard. That, of course, matters an awful lot. Um and the only thing I can really come up with, for I think for a lot of the fans, I guess it's 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 probably more exciting the sort of ending of the season, if Chelsea legend Frank Lampard is in charge than if some some random guy from the backroom staff who you've never heard of is in charge. And I guess they were also hoping he could kind of give them an immediate lift, and give them a chance in this sort of um, double header against Real Madrid in the Champions League. Now, of course, that as we saw this week, did not go very well. 
they were soundly beaten in Madrid. Never, I mean, I say they were never anywhere near anything. There were a couple of moments early in that game where they caught uh, Real Madrid and, and had, a, had two or three chances on the counter when you because Real Madrid were weirdly sloppy in midfield, and you thought, wow, you know, early goal here and anything can happen. But 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 after that, really, Real Madrid were just in total control. And I thought, given that this this was it, you know, this was the last chance for Chelsea to salvage something. I just thought they were a little bit flat, uh, even before the sending off, obviously, which changed the game. And they continued to look like a sort of loosely assembled uh, collection of very good players who don't know each other very well, which I guess is what they are. And I, I think as much as I'm not massively impressed with Frank Lampard, I think it's a big ask for him to fix that. In, uh, in just a couple of days, really. Uh, and uh, Which then raises the question of what exactly is the point of bringing him in now. I mean, if you bring in Frank Lampard now, one of two things are going to happen. Either it doesn't go very well, he doesn't win a lot of games, in which, well, then what was the point? You might as well have stuck with Potter until the summer. Or he does really well, at which point you end up in a sort of Uruguay-Nasol-Cha so, uh, situation that United were in, where they kind of have to appoint him full-time even though I think you kind of know deep down this isn't going to be the thing that takes you back to the top. Uh, I, I mean, that would, that would be terrible for Chelsea if they now go on uh, some kind of a run in the league and they think, oh, should we maybe appoint Frank Lampard? Like, that, 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 that's not where you want to be. Uh, so so it, it seems like a lose-lose, really, in, in that regard. And the only sort of potential thing that could be if he could rouse them to, to an unlikely success in the Champions League. But that does not seem to happen. So strange little... I suspect this will just be a strange little cameo for, for Super Frank before his uh, sort of coaching career continues. And I'm sure the next job he turns up in will be another one where you go, hey, hang on, hang on. How's he... How has he gotten that one? I mean, that, because that seems to be the magic of of, of Super Frankie Lampard, uh, the manager so far. What about poor old Graham Potter? I mean, we're not going to do a full Potter debrief, except to say that I personally, of course, when this happened, had to sort of quietly back into the hedge like like Homer Simpson, because I pretty recently wrote a piece on the Bets on website where I think the title ended up being something like the Potter's quiet leadership can succeed at Chelsea uh, just a couple of weeks before he gets sacked, which is obviously a bad look for me. Uh, but but the, the article was more about uh, not not just that Potter could do well, though I did believe he could turn it around. Uh, I have to admit that. Uh, but, but, but it was more a case of all this criticism of him that he doesn't look or sound like a Chelsea manager. You know, because at Chelsea, they like managers who, who jump up and down and shout and throw things and are very angry men. Uh, and, and that is true. They've had success with sort of jumpy, shouty uh, managers in the past. And Graham Potter was obviously a huge departure for that. Now, the point I kind of wanted to make is that I'm, I'm not sure... If we're trying to make sense of what Todd Bowley and the gang have done so far at Chelsea, it is, again, yes, they've spent an awful lot of money, but they've spent it on mostly young players on long contracts. They brought in people. I mean, we had a whole episode of this. They brought in people who worked at Brighton and for the Red Bull Empire. and all. He, he does seem to be putting things in place, Todd Bowley, for kind of a long-term approach to a lot of these things now I don't think the kind of manager who have been successful at Chelsea before Antonio Conte uh, Jose Mourinho the sort of uh, jump up and down and shout and and either you win now or you fall out with everyone I guess Tuchel is a little bit in that bracket as well uh, even though he didn't really fall out with people but you know what I mean 
I don't think that type of manager that we might now think of as a typical Chelsea manager, I don't think that's going to be a typical Chelsea manager in the future. Because I think if uh, if Todd Bowley wanted to do this boom and bust, a shouty man comes in, shouts at everyone, and you either win or it crashes and burns and you have to have a full rebuild or more often first one and then the other. I don't think you would sign a, a ton of young players and, and talk about wanting a multi-club model and all of this sort of stuff if that's what you were going to do. So I think whoever ends up being in charge of Chelsea after this, I think is more likely to also be a more sort of nurturing guy who thinks a little bit more long-term rather than a jumpy, shouty man, even if that's sort of what the crowd are into. Now, whether Potter himself was up to the job, I mean, it seems not. And it's a bit of a shame because I, I, I like him as a character and his sort of whole backstory. I spoke to someone who's played under him once and he talked a lot about how he's someone who's good at lifting people and sort of finding out what motivates everyone and gets to know everyone in the squad and that sort of very nurturing approach. And maybe that just wasn't viable this season where because of this sort of unhinged shopping spree, you have a squad where you have certain positions. You've basically got three players uh, for a number of positions who are expecting to to start every week. Yet, there are some positions where you basically have no one, so it's hard to find an 11 that works. We've been through all this. But like, I wonder if his sort of nurturing ways, the very sort of patient, nice guy, get to know everyone, find out what motivates them, Maybe you can't really do that when you've got like half a squad who are annoyed at not playing and and probably don't really want to be there and quite a few people are going to get sold. Maybe more ruthlessness would have been needed uh, rather than Potter's sort of more gentle approach to things. I'm I'm fairly convinced Potter is going to do well somewhere else wherever he ends up getting appointed. I'd be I, I suspect he'll do very good work. I, I still think he's a good manager, but. That that happens sometimes in football. You have a good manager who's at the wrong club at the wrong time and, and can't quite come to grips with the actual task in front of him. And that seems more than anything else to be what's happened now. The, the other Champions League game we had this week, of course, was Man City, who kind of thrashed Bayern Munich. Though I say thrashed, it was a strange game in the sense that that they actually had less possession than Bayern Munich at home, and you don't see that often, that City have less possession than anyone, at the Etihad in particular. But but you still never felt that there was any risk of a team not named Manchester City winning that game. Uh, they were so sharp when they did attack, and, and they just they are hitting peak form at just the right moment, aren't they? I think, they think they've scored 24 goals in the last five games or something crazy like that. Um you have just things falling into place for City at the moment. This sort of hybrid system where they have John Stones who either play who play in the back line when they don't have the ball and he steps into midfield. I mean, that seems to be working really well. You have Jack Grealish who's really finding finding his form and, and, and playing the best football we've seen from him at, at City. Then, of course, you have a certain Alling Hall on up front who's looking kind of rested, fresh and dangerous again up front he, he's just an absolute menace and he you're seeing little signs that i think he's fitting in a little bit more this might be just from watching the game i haven't seen the stats but it seems like he's pressing a little bit more aggressively from the front than he's maybe done before you know he played that wonderful cross to bernardo silva for the goal so sort of start starting to sort of look for other players i think he's always done that but it takes a bit of practice to get into it certainly he seems to fit in uh, maybe slightly better than he was earlier in the season at times, is that fair to say? Certainly it's working really well. 
and, and, and City just looking terrifying at the moment, which does bring us to last weekend's uh, crazy, crazy game between Liverpool and Arsenal. What an advert that was for the Premier League, as they say. Um, and it was one of those, I saw a lot of people try to sort of convince themselves that, that it's a good point. It's a good point for Arsenal because they always do badly uh, against Liverpool at Anfield. And I really wonder about stuff like that, like head-to-head records. It's like one of the stats I put the least uh, emphasis on ever in, in, in football because I just don't, I'm just not convinced it matters. Many past Arsenal teams have lost in this stadium, so that must put the current Arsenal team at a disadvantage there. I'm just not convinced that makes sense. Yeah, yes, Arsenal lost 5-1 to Liverpool in 2014 with uh, with Olivier Giroud up front and Nacho Monreal and Bakari Sanya and Per Mertesacker in the team. Like, th- Does that matter? I don't think so. Pretty confident that it doesn't. Um, but but I wonder if it can become a psychological thing. Because uh, like, as, as regular listeners will know, I, I, I like kind of statistics and numbers better than intangible things. Because intangible stuff, I feel a lot of people just make up. Uh, you know, we, we make up narratives to explain things that are more down to random variation or whatever. And, and all this sort of, ooh, we always do well in the, this stadium or we always do badly in that stadium. There's no reason why that should be the case. But as much as I'm suspicious of intangible things, I do believe in psychology. I think psychology is clearly a thing, right? And I think if the players keep hearing, oh, we always do badly at Anfield, if you read in the paper, oh, Liverpool haven't won at Anfield in so long, and and it even sort of gets into Mikel Arteta's brain a little bit, and he starts doing like absurd things, like uh, playing You'll Never Walk Alone out of stereos in the training ground, like we saw on the Amazon show. Like... Then you put yourself in a frame of mind when everyone's like, oh, no, we, we always do very badly at Anfield. It's such a difficult place to go. And, and this is something that you hear sports psychologists talk about quite a lot, is that the problem with, like, if, you, if you're afraid of losing, you don't do the things that, that usually enable you to win. It, it, it can alter your behavior in, in a way that isn't positive. And I think if you, if you just turned up at Anfield and you just played football the way you normally do, I don't think it would matter at all. Uh, and this stuff about, oh, Granit Xhaka, he, he pushed uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold and he, he woke the sleeping crowd. I, I don't know about all that, but I, I don't think it should matter. But I wonder if, if the players keep hearing that it matters, then suddenly it does start to matter because it can play on their minds. In the same way that for the Liverpool players, they have this history of, of scoring late winners at Anfield when the crowd are, are up for it, so to speak. Some of them have experienced it themselves. Others have just seen it on TV. Some have grown up uh, with it. Uh, and if you think you will win, I think you're more likely to win. Whereas if you're afraid of losing, I think you're less likely to win. So it's one of those things where the thing itself doesn't really matter whether it's a bit louder than usual or it's a ground that you've lost in before like that stuff shouldn't matter but but the players if they start thinking it matters then it does matter if you catch my drift I I suspect it's one of those and I wonder if that actually played a part here because Liverpool this season you know they've attacked I mean I looked at the numbers ahead of the game for the sort of weekly betting uh, column 
going forward, Liverpool have been pretty okay. As, as much as they've had a bad season overall, their attacking numbers are kind of up there with Newcastle's. They're, they're, they're still sort of roughly a top four attacking team in this division. But, but defensively, they've not been okay. Defensively, they're sort of on a par with Crystal Palace or something. So they're, they're a team that attack really well still, but they're very inconsistent at the back. This, this is what the numbers say. This tallies very well with what we see when we watch Liverpool. So what you really don't want against Liverpool is to be pinned back. What you don't want is for them to have a lot of the ball and and, and attack you and keep going at you. Because when you're on the defensive, you're not exploiting their weakness, which is their their defense, whereas you're letting them uh, run at you with their very good attackers. Now, now some of this is... You know, it can do, it can be to do with the intensity of the pressing and the gain, regaining the ball. But I also wonder if it was the fear, maybe the fear of the Anfield uh, crowd and the Anfield hoodoo, uh, kind of took hold a little bit. And and the Arsenal players thought, oh my God, you know, here come Liverpool, and it's all it's all noisy, and they're running at us, and Mohamed Salah keeps running past Zinchenko or whatever it is. Like you, you become worried. And that makes them sort of drop back a bit. They they maybe take they don't keep the ball as well. They give, give it away. They they knock it long when they don't have to, and and you end up actually losing and ceding more initiative to Liverpool than you need to in that game. And then you come away thinking, well, Liverpool created more than enough chances to win that game. But I don't think that is a good point. Uh, and I hate to disagree with Ian Wright, who's who's a great man, who's who's right about a lot of things. He he was quite clear on on match of the day that he thought it was a good point. But when you're up against the Man City team, who have just gone into beast mode recently and are just brushing everyone aside and are looking absolutely terrifying, a point is never a good point. <laughs> like you, someone could get injured, things could change. But the way City have been playing the last couple of weeks, it does look like they're just going to win every game for the rest of the season now. And, and if they do, Arsenal don't win the league. So obviously the game against City is going to be absolutely key. Uh, but, but even so, I don't think any points dropped right now can be ever called a good point. Not because Anfield is an easy place to go, just because you're up against the Death Star, who is just looking completely unstoppable. And I think this is reflected a little bit in the betting markets. There was a really big swing over last weekend with Arsenal uh, dropping points at Liverpool, with uh, Man City looking impressive again. And, and if you look at it now, I mean, we spoke about it last week on the pod that, that Arsenal were just 160-something to win the title. And uh, and that I was like, well, I think they'll do it, but that seems a bit short to me. Well, it's, it's swung around now. I mean, if you look at, at Betson, uh, their their odds is uh, Manchester City are 180 to win the league and Arsenal are 2.0, oh, uh, which reflects, of course, that the market's now... Uh, the betting markets and the odds compilers think that Man City are, are just about more likely to do it than Arsenal. And I'm listen, I'm not going to do a full 180, because I did say just the other week that I think Arsenal will do it. But ooh, the, the combination of City looking quite as good as they were and Arsenal crumbling to the extent that they did at uh, away to Liverpool, that is a little bit worrying, especially given that it all kind of comes down to this game between Arsenal and Manchester City. And I know one game was at Anfield and the other one was at the Etihad, but just the difference between how uh, Arsenal crumbled in the second half against Liverpool and the way Man City just wiped the floor with Liverpool when they met. You know, they they were outclassed. It was it was extraordinary. 
those were two very different things to watch, and it does uh, fill me with a little bit of dread on behalf of my uh, Arsenal call uh, ahead of that game. So, so I th- we'll see. It, it is, if nothing else, what a fascinating title race we have. And and the thing to remember is there's time for more twists here. There's time for more twists. I mean, it does feel like we're a lot closer to the end of the season than than we really are. All right. So so I looked this up. And, I mean, I'm recording this on the 14th of April. If we go back to, let's say, uh, 2016. Uh, 14th of April, 2016, the top teams, the two the teams near the top of the league, had played 33 games, which means they had five left. But right now, I mean, City have played 29 games in the Premier League. They've, they've, they've got nine left. So that's almost twice as much left of the season at this point as there might normally be in a normal season because of the World Cup and all that sort of stuff. So so it feels like we should be closer to the finish line, but actually we aren't. There's actually quite a lot of football left to be played. Uh, so I guess the mistake that me and uh, people like me are making constantly is thinking this is uh, over one way or the other when there's still plenty of time for twists. I am slightly terrified by, by what City are doing at the moment. It just feels like they've peaked at the right time. Uh, but but we'll see how, how that goes. Now, of course, since... We're addressing some big talking points uh, from the weekend for the last couple of weeks. You might wonder, what about VAR? What about the VAR and the ref stuff? And and to, I, I will just say, welcome to the Lars Resort. Huh? VAR chat is just banned outright uh, on these premises at the resort. You know why? There's just too much moaning about VAR in every other outlet uh, out there, whether you go on social media or you even just watch football or watch Match of the Day, wherever you go, there's just constant moaning about VAR, uh, which means, A, you can find it somewhere else if that's what you really want, and B, I am really bored with it. It's, I just I just can't be arsed. So that is, that is the short version of this. Uh, in the sort of Norwegian OG pod, we did 250 episodes without a single chat about VAR. You know, it, it can be done. Just be the change you want to see in the world. And if you want to listen to angry men whinge about VAR, then there's just about every podcast out there will we'll provide that for you at some point. Uh, there might be some ref chat at some point, but I like to keep that to a minimum as well because I think we have a really unhealthy obsession with referees and refereeing decisions. You, you see people just lose their minds entirely on this subject, like, there's no doubt that this weekend Brighton were very hard done by, right? That there was the trip on Mitoma that just was 100% a penalty. For me, the two-foot tackle from Perisic should have been a straight red as well. And there were other calls, but most of them were at least debatable. Like, none of them were completely clear-cut because the handball law like it or loathe it, I tend to loathe it, it is what it is, if there's any kind of brush on the hand and and it leads to the goal. I mean, it doesn't even have to change direction. The ball just needs to be in contact with the hand in any kind of way, then you have to rule out the goal. And, And when that law is what it is, you get the decisions that you get. I think that's at least understandable, even if it's unpopular. And and the the the, the shirt tug on uh, that Longley does on Dunk was it? Yeah, no, that that's a foul. But we also see time and time again that those aren't given in the box. That that's pretty common in the Premier League. So I I would say that those so I would say that those decisions are mostly like debatable rather than outright wrong. But of course, when you have a game where a number of tight decisions like that all go the same way. 
and all go the way of, of the bigger club in terms of resources, and they all go against a very likable underdog, then obviously that creates a, an ex- ex- you know, incredibly strong sense of injustice, uh, be it from Brighton fans or, or from neutral. I think that's completely understandable. So obviously what happens then is that people get upset and they want to vent on the internet, and that's fine, but you also get people who just lose their minds completely. I mean, I saw Mark Sagers who at some point of his career was like a serious broadcaster, actually like suggesting that the game should be replayed or investigated. Like, what are you talking about? I I saw a Brighton fan put out a list of the match officials on the day and just wrote, remember the names. Like, it's a a game of football, not the actual Holocaust, you massive lunatics. So this is sort of where ref discourse gets us. So, So maybe there is a serious chat to be had about the standard of refereeing, what can be done to raise it. Maybe we should do something on that. But but I would just firstly say that very few people get better at their jobs from being abused online. So if you actually want uh, better referees, then try not to act like a crazy person. That would be step one. Uh, the, the people who are just sort of on the more unhinged end of the social media spectrum are very obviously part of the problem here. Because if you want better referees, you want to recruit more. So you have a bigger talent pool, so you're more likely to get good ones. That would be step one. And if you make it completely inhospitable to be a referee in this country, you're going to have fewer good ones. This is completely obvious. Anyway, if you want moaning about referees, this is the wrong pod for you. If you want moaning about moaning about referees, hmm... As you can tell, there could be some of this here. Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep that to a minimum as well, though. Point being, uh, I, I'm, in the future, I'm not going to address too much of these things. Cause it's just kind of boring, as you can tell. Just don't be a lunatic on the internet, and sometimes the referee will call things against your team. Like th- These are just... Uh, th- th- this is part of life. Now, elsewhere last weekend... I, I want to talk about Roy Hodgson, about sort of the, the free jazz era of Roy Hodgson. I, I owe the man an apology. Huh? I, the, the Crystal Palace hadn't won in 13 games when he came in. But of course, they had like drawn against Liverpool, they'd drawn against Brighton, they'd drawn against Man United and Newcastle. They only lost by one goal to Man City and Chelsea and, and, and to United again. So Palace weren't terrible. They were pretty resilient, but they were struggling to score goals. And of course, I made the joke we all made the joke you have a team that's fairly solid but it's not scoring goals and you bring in a 75 year old Roy Hodgson like really is that a thing uh but here but here we are two two wins and two huge results for Crystal Palace and crucially showing some more attacking intent you know Patrick Vieira tended to play with a bit of a sort of double pivot with two quite sort of deep midfielders um which is very common there's nothing wrong with it but it was very surprising then to see Hodgson of all people come in and just go on the offensive in in the first two games they've played uh 4-3-3 with Dukur as the only guy holding and then Jeffrey Schlupp and Ibera Eze either side of him as like box-to-box dudes and that's a very bold sort of attacking outset uh, attacking a way to to go about it from Roy Hodgson I think especially when you have two just sort of huge relegation six pointers to just go front foot like that rather than think safety first when we know how Roy Hodgson usually sets up his teams instead he's released the Eze and and you will come to learn this about me dear listener at the Lars Resort I am fully aboard the Ibera Eze hype train him and Michael Olise are such incredibly fun players to watch but of course the output it just hasn't been there in terms of goals and assists this season. But against Leeds, I mean, they just tore them a new orifice. It was incredible. Um, 
Now, throughout and in the first game against Leicester, I think uh, I think Palace had like thirty-one shots or something. So, so throughout Hodgson's very, very long career, it's always been about structure off the ball and everyone stands in the right place and working on team shape and stuff. This was tremendous. This was a lot more fun. Uh, some of that will just be Leeds just falling to pieces entirely. Uh, and 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 I don't wonder about Leeds. They do actually have a pretty reasonable squad on paper, uh, more quality uh, than than a few teams down there, I think. But they do seem to just not do the basics very well and find game find ways of losing games in ways they really shouldn't. But still, the sort of freewheeling jazz funk Roy Hodgson, I am completely here for it. Next up on. Um, Without this turning into the Lars Everton Apologies and Clarifications tour, let's just flag up Aston Villa for a moment, because I may have uh, slanderously suggested that Villa might be on the beach uh, a few weeks ago, you know, not getting relegated, not getting Europe, you know, might just, you know, pack it in for the for the spring and just chill out a little bit. But they're playing beautifully, you know, they've won six in the last seven. Yeah, overperforming their XG a little bit. Fixture list is about to turn bad, so I suspect they'll 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 probably start losing some games now. But uh, but but very impressive stuff for Villa, and I think it speaks um, it speaks well of the players that with Unai Emery, who's someone who who we know is a very skilled tactician, a very intelligent guy, has done well at various clubs. But we also know from sort of interviews with players who have played under him and stories and stuff. Not always the most exciting in terms of his methodology. You know, a lot of video analysis, a lot of very careful sort of uh, detail-orientated coaching. Uh, we know he had some language issues at, at Arsenal and wasn't always making himself understood. Now, I should say, of course, his English is a heck of a lot better than my Spanish, but still... If he's not able to make himself fully understood and communicate effectively, then that is a problem. So when you have a guy like that, who is, with the best will in the world, a bit of a nerd, go into a club that's in that sort of doldrums between the European spots and relegation, you're thinking, come on, this is probably... You can understand if the players switch off a little bit. But but no, absolutely not. They've been playing really, really well. He's getting good performances out of them. Uh, Good job, Unai Emery. Hope we have a strong competitive Aston Villa next season a little bit of uh, a little bit of work to do with that squad in the summer I'm sure I, I noticed the time is ticking away uh, something ferociously at the moment so maybe this is the time to call it I never know when this is like many things I'd like to talk about uh, when when you call it a day what I will say near the end you know the betting segment returns with a vengeance I've, I've taken a good look at uh, at the weekend's I've written a very long betting column this week, longer than usual, I think, felt that way anyway, where I've looked at uh, six of the games that's being played in the Premier League this weekend and found some bets that I like, and and I suppose they also function kind of as preview pieces in a sense, uh, don't they? And what I usually do is I sort of flag up one of them on the pod, now which, I mean, since we spoke about them, since we spoke about them, I, I, I like a couple of things in Aston Villa versus Newcastle, right? Because Aston Villa, they are on this sort of hot streak, six wins in the last seven, going really well. But the caveat is uh, that they have on that run, they've played against Everton, Crystal Palace, West Ham, Bournemouth, uh, misfiring Chelsea, Leicester, and then Nottingham Forest. Like, it's a pretty gentle fixture list they've had. Now, obviously, you can only ever beat what's put in front of you, but the fixture list is about to turn a little bit. 
Uh, and in addition, I think they've been overperforming their or outperforming their XG by quite a lot. And when teams do that, sometimes they fall away a little bit. So I, I, I looked it up, and on the on the understat website, because you can sort by date, which is very handy. Uh, now, since the first of January. Actually, only Arsenal and Manchester City have taken more points than Aston Villa, which is crazy. Uh, but according to Understat, Villa are actually ninth in the league for XG created. There's only six teams in the league that have conceded a higher XG number. So right near the middle in terms of XG created and well on the bottom half of the table for, for their defensive numbers in this period. That obviously doesn't devalue their their efforts at all it doesn't mean that the, those points were lucky or unearned or something that's not how football works but it does mean there's a good chance that those results will start turning a little bit and i do wonder starting with newcastle at the weekend you know they really try to play out from the back under unai emery to be patient with the ball that's something that emery is pretty big on they're playing now newcastle who press more aggressively than than most teams in the league you've noticed when i sort of rattled off a list of teams that they've beaten very few of the teams i read out are sort of high pressing teams they're teams who kind of tend to sit back and will have let villa build their play from the back i don't think newcastle will do that at all so there are a couple of things I like here. I think the price for a Newcastle win is slightly on the low side. Uh, they're 215 last time I checked to win, which is okay. But but again, as much as I think there's a regression is coming for, for Aston Villa, yeah, 215 uh, at Villa Park for, for Newcastle to beat them. Not sure about that. I would have wanted that to be a little bit higher. But I think both teams to score is an interesting one. Because Villa are on this crazy run. They've scored at least one goal in every game for the last 19 games. Like, they, they, they almost... Well, they pretty much always score. That seems to be the thing under Unai Emery. They at least score a goal. Whereas Newcastle have actually only kept one clean sheet in their last 11. So you have a, a team in Aston Villa who I think are due a bit of a regression, but they do always score goals. Newcastle are on good form, but they usually concede a goal. So I think both teams to score at odds of 180 is a very sensible bet this weekend. But what you could do, if you want to be a bit bold, I, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to personally take a punt on uh, a Newcastle to win, but both teams to score, because that gets you an odds of 4.45, which I think is a, I, I think that's a decent sort of chunky price, because I am expecting Villa to get a goal, but I think Newcastle can win. So I think there's a bit of value there. Now, if you are a regular reader of the betting column, you might remember that I tried that for Tottenham Brighton last uh, weekend. I tried Brighton to win and both teams to score. And you know what? Watching that game, I thought that in terms of analyzing how the game was going to go, I thought that bet was... I thought the analysis was fine, uh, but some some iffy finishing and some uh, iffy refereeing uh, stitched us up on that one. And I want to go with that one again, but here, I think Newcastle can go away to Villa Park and win, but I'm not sure they can keep a clean sheet. So I like Newcastle to win and both teams to score. That's one of the six games I've looked at in the uh, weekly betting column on the Bet- Bets on website. I'll post a link on my Twitter account. Do check that out if you are planning to have a bet on something this weekend. But of course... As always, uh, gamble responsibly. Uh, It's only meant to be a bit of fun to enhance your enjoyment of the weekend. And if it isn't, please make sure you talk to someone about it and use the various tools that are available for for blocking off your account and all that sort of stuff that you can do. Okay, Um, I think we'll call it there. A slightly rambly and chaotic episode of The Lars Resort, but nice to be back in the swing of things. There were some things I had to get get off my chest. Perhaps we'll be back after the the weekend. (laughs) Well, I hope we'll be back. 
certainly be back, but but perhaps we'll be back with a slightly more focused episode. Mm, we'll see see how that goes. But nice to nice to hang out with you again. Anyway, have a lovely weekend. Enjoy the football. Uh, farewell.